Hear the word of the Lord from John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full." This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. And it's so good to be back here. Um, and, and like I alluded to, the last 10 weeks for me personally has been uh, quite the roller coaster. Um, leading up to the birth of our third son, uh, we didn't know what was going on. He was premature, but even for being a premature baby, he was small. And so there was this period of uncertainty of what was going to happen uh, with him, if things were going to come out okay, or if he was going to be in the hospital for quite some time. Uh, and and what has happened over the last 10 weeks has allowed me to step out to some degree, uh, at least from the pulpit, to focus on my family uh, and be more attentive there. And so for the first time in the history of this church, which is only like a year and a half, you're, you're in eight, nine months or so, um, I had two consecutive weeks off from preaching, which was awesome. Um, and like I was saying, this allows me time to, to examine my own heart, to kind of do some devotional work that I don't get to do in my normal weekly routine that's more in-depth than just a daily devotional, but also spend some time thinking about the church and what, what season of life the church is in and what God's doing and kind of get a, a pulse for what's happening. Now, let me say this. The mission of Sacred City Church has been the same since day one, and it will forever be this mission. And our mission as a church is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. That's 
that's what we're about. Everything that we do as a church is, is fed out of this mission. And let me just expand this for just a minute and say, when we say make disciples, what, we, what we're saying here is that we want to see new people come to faith in Jesus. We believe that Jesus is calling his family together and there are people who are not in this room yet that Jesus in our, in our city is calling to be in this room and part of this family. And so we're working to make disciples in that way. We're evangelizing and sharing our faith. We're living on mission. But part of making disciples is also maturing in our faith. It's not just, God's mission is not just to make converts, but to make disciples, to see us grow into maturity in Christ. In fact, that was the Apostles Paul prayer for the Ephesian church, that we may mature, that we grow up in Christ. And part of that in growing up is developing leaders and multiplying communities because by God's grace, we're growing numerically and leaders are being developed that allows us to plant churches and multiply missional communities. And so we want to send and support people going to places with the gospel. We're not thinking just growing a big ministry. We're thinking about multiplying a ministry throughout our city and our region. In fact, one of the things that we love to do is, is create these missional communities. These are the, the, the groups that our church has that we organize around, our family life is organized around these where we're uh, committed to living life together with one another, we're praying together, we're sharing life together, we're eating together, we're growing uh, in, in our discipleship, studying God's word together and living on mission together. And one of the great things, we're, we're, I haven't talked about this, one of our goals in setting out in 2018 was to uh, begin and multiply a missional community out in Alito. We've got a family that's been with us for the last four or five years that they've been praying and asking for God to gather people together. And starting this week, we're going to have a multiplication party in Alito to celebrate what God's doing and this new season that's being birthed here. And so that's just one of the ways that we're talking about planting churches. Our hope is maybe one day God would open up enough roads to plant a church down in that area. And so we're committed to planting churches, to multiplying what's going on. And when we say we want to renew the city, this really comes out of the Lord's Prayer when we say, on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, everything will be set right. Everything that's broken will be fixed. Everything sad will come untrue. And so there's a sense where to, to now, where God's spirit is at work, he's renewing the city where there's brokenness and decrepit uh, things in our city. We're working to make things new. And we're passionate about this mission. Like this is really what we're all about. And it's not because it sounds cool, it's because these are traits of a fruitful church. For a lot, I think for a lot of people, when they think about a healthy, thriving, fruitful church, one of the things that we go to right away is this idea of, of numerical growth, right? Having a big church, a lot of ministries, um, having a, a nice building, um, things like that that show, give some sort of uh, external appeal or external significance to what's going on. But really what scripture shows us is that gospel success is being faithful to Jesus in the Great Commission, which is making disciples, uh, in the movement and the renewal of the city and planting churches as he provides the opportunity to do so. And so it's impossible, we have to realize that it's impossible for a church to, to thrive or succeed in this mission of making disciples, planting churches, and renewing the city if individual members aren't bought into this. 
right? You won't, you won't succeed in finishing the Bix next weekend if your body or a part of your body decides not to cooperate, right? If you're running and all of a sudden you get a calf cramp, your calf's like, no way, I'm not doing this anymore, you're probably not gonna finish the race. And so the same is true of the church. You're not gonna succeed. The church won't succeed unless every body part, every member of the body is on board and working toward that end. This mission for our church requires all hands on deck because the the call to make disciples isn't just for the spiritual elite or the pastors or the staff of the church. The call to make disciples is for everyone whose faith is in Christ. Now, over the last seven years, that's how long I've been with Sacred City Church being uh, sent over from Davenport to start a new church here. I've been increasingly invested in this mission. Um, and personally, over the last seven years, I have picked up on a couple of lessons, right? What, things that are bound to happen when you're committed to the mission of making disciples, planting churches, and renewing the city. Now, first of all, uh, I think a lot of people, when they hear this mission of making disciples, there's this factor of being intimidated by this call. For example, if, if a bride calls you up uh, or a bride-to-be calls you up and asks you to design a wedding dress and sew a wedding dress together, she's assuming that you know how, right? And if you don't know how or you feel like you don't know how, that is a pretty intimidating phone call to get. A lot is riding on your ability to make this dress, Now, the same is true of making disciples, right? When Jesus calls us to make disciples, there's a sense where we don't know how, right? That call can seem intimidating and overwhelming. But there are some other people who who maybe are, well, let me just... Let me just kind of paint that picture. So it's this overwhelming sense, right? Because in your mind, you're thinking, okay, make disciples, that's intimidating. That's something I don't know how to do, right? What if I say something wrong? What if I offend someone? What if, what if I don't know how to communicate the gospel to somebody right there in the moment? Right? There is a bit of uh, fairness in saying, like, that is intimidating. In fact, I'm a bit skeptical if you don't feel like that to some degree. Because making disciples is a task that lies beyond our own skill set. Now, the second thing that I've learned about this mission is that if you are daring enough, if you're willing to step out in faith and, and be like, okay, I don't really know how to do this. I'm trusting God to help me and to show me how to make disciples. And you step into it what you find is that making disciples is exhausting. Like, let's just be honest. Making disciples is tiring work because two things are happening simultaneously. First of all, when you're making disciples, you're thinking of investing in somebody else. You're investing your time, your care, your emotional bandwidth, truth, right? You're spending all kinds of resources with other people. And in a sense, it's it's an act of giving yourself away. And when you think about the people that God has placed you in in the lives of those people to make disciples, right? You're looking at your home, right? Your kids, you're making disciples there. You're making disciples of your spouse, right? This mutual discipleship that's happening that, that as a spouse to your spouse, you are the number one disciple maker in that person's life. God has appointed you there for that reason. You think about it in context of your missional community, 
right? The people that God has said, hey, I want you to walk alongside these people. Or even think about it in terms of mission because discipleship doesn't happen at the point of conversion. Discipleship begins at the point of relationship, right? So you're not yet believing friends that God has called you to pray for and to love and to walk alongside and, and with, with the hopes that they would come to know who Jesus is. All of this is time-consuming. It's resource-consuming. It's, it's emotionally draining. So that's one part of it, right? that you're investing into others. But the other part of making disciples is that you yourself as disciple, you're a disciple that God is in the process of making as well. There is no such thing on this side of eternity as a finished and completely formed disciple. Everyone is in the process of discipleship. So what that means is that God is working on you. And a lot of the times, the way that God is at work in your life is by having you disciple someone else. See, discipleship is the act of partnering with God to work toward maturation of others and yourself while God is doing a bunch of work behind the scenes. And like I said, making disciples is a, takes a physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational toll on us. And if you don't feel that, you're probably not making disciples. Now, these two experiences, right, to, to feel the, the weightiness, the... Uh, the um, the overwhelming sense or the overwhelming call to make disciples, but also the exhausting piece of actually stepping into that are, are appropriate. In fact, I think they're unavoidable if we, like Jesus, are committed to making disciples who make disciples, planting churches and renewing the city. But the question then is how do we work through this? I think there's a temptation for some of us to say, well, we don't, right? It's, it's just too hard. The, the work that Jesus has called us to is unrealistic. There's no way I can do it. Maybe, it's, maybe this is our response due to laziness or indifference to what God is trying to do here among us. We say the mission is too big, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe the mission is okay, but we need to take a more bite-sized approach, something that's a little more easier to, to grapple with. And so there's this sense of, of resignation. And listen to this. When Christians give up on the mission of God, which is the mission of our church, we believe, to make disciples, churches die. Maybe not all at once, but when the mission of, church, uh, mission of God wanes in the church, the church itself will perish. Maybe not all at once, but little by little. Now, for the person, mostly the type A people who just like to go and get it, right, the zealous, the idea of just letting the mission fall to the wayside is preposterous. This person looks at the mission of God and say, we can do it, right? They would rather push and grind, go full speed ahead, no stops. And it's possible that this is out of good intentions, right? I'm not saying that, that moving forward and driving ahead is, is necessarily a bad thing, but oftentimes a, a hard-headed driving force is driven by ignorance and frustration. What eventually happens is the people in, in this circle, they'll wear out others. 
Their intensity is too much. They keep demanding more and more without letting up. And what happens, this type of person who wants to keep going forward, they combat this resistance by resorting to some sort of manipulation. And what happens if, if people are aware of the manipulation that's in play, eventually they'll get hurt by it and they'll say, you know what, I'm ready to step away from this. And if God is gracious to the person who is ignorantly zealous for God's mission, then eventually God will allow for that person to crash too. Now this is personal for me. Because over the last few weeks, God has been showing me how much I trend toward the latter. How much I like to just bear down and push down and go forward. Now part of this is, is a, a trait that a church planner has to have, okay? I'm not saying that's all bad, but I think that there's a sense of self-reliance and self-dependence or, or self-motivated drive that where this becomes toxic. Now, how I see this is when I put high expectations on myself and that happens to get projected onto others and internally I feel anger building because I'm thinking, well, I'm doing this, why aren't they doing that? And I'm not... This is, not, this is more of a confession. I'm letting you into the dark, dark crevices of my heart. I'm not trying to guilt you here. But this anger builds, and there's a temptation to lean towards manipulation. Now, I have seen how this mentality can tank a church just as fast as it pops up. Right? There are stories of church planners who go, 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 hard, 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 only to be around for three years and the whole thing falls apart. Now I'm grateful that over the last 10 weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it's been, God has used the season that I've been in to open my eyes a bit to what's going on here, to my own tendencies. And he has graciously reminded me that self-reliance is not sustain, it's not a sustainable driving force if we want to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city for generation after generation. It's not gonna work. Now, this does not mean that the mission is not sustainable. See, Jesus doesn't give us a mission and, and let us loose to try to figure it out and then say, you know what? Forget it, guys. Let's just, let's just leave this behind. Uh, Let's just bail on this idea. Jesus doesn't do that. But what he does is he offers us a new way to move forward. And today's text is one of the best texts for speaking to this issue. Here, Jesus offers us a new means for gospel fruitfulness. One that can sustain the church and its members season after season, decade after decade. And so what we see here in John chapter 15 is the key to achieving this mission of the church. But it's also the key to living as a Christian every single day. See, if we want our families, if we want to see our missional communities and the church thrive and leave a robust gospel legacy, we must learn how to abide. And so that's where we're going.
All that to say this. This is where we're going. Why don't you turn to John chapter 15 with me. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. It's on page 526. Uh, I will tell you, we usually preach uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, and just for these couple of weeks, we're dropping down right in the middle of John's gospel. And let me just tell you a little bit about what's going on here within the context of this book. Uh, Jesus is in the process of saying goodbye to all of his disciples as his crucifixion approaches. Um, and, and, and as he's saying goodbye, he, he's left behind these seven I am statements. Uh, and these statements reveal Jesus' significance. In fact, all of these statements reference back to some piece of the Old Testament. For example, Jesus has said to his disciples that I am the bread of life. Right? That points back to Exodus 16 where God has made manna come from the sky while his people were out in the wilderness. Jesus saying, I am what sustains you. He says in a different piece here, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a reference back to the prophet Isaiah's prophecy that, that God would send a highway for God's people to get back to him in heaven. And so now Jesus is establishing his identity here. And as he's doing so, he's revealing that he is the answer to all of God's promises in the Old Testament. Every single one. And so it is with this passage right here in verse one. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. The Old Testament significance here uh, is, is loaded. And in fact, this, this statement is referencing back to something. This is how I think of it. If this passage were a candy it would be a hot tamale because there's a little bit of sweetness here because Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy, but, but there's also a little kick. There's a little jab because he says, I am the true vine. Now, God's people throughout the Old Testament have been referred to as God's vine, the, the vine that God had planted. In Psalm 80, God, uh, the psalmist talks about the vine that God brought out of, of uh, in, in the Exodus, out of Egypt, and this vine, as it, as it was connected to God, as it was obedient to God, this vine would flourish. In fact, the psalm talks about how, how the vine grew up so big that it provided shade to the mountains. But as the story unfolds, as time progressed, what we see is God's people are unable to remain faithful to God's call for obedience, that they push God aside, that they rebel against his commandments, that they pursue life their own way. And when they do that, the vine is destroyed, that bit by bit it's hacked up, it's chopped off, it's broken off, and then eventually it's burned and consumed. See, God's vine is an is an image for God's people that when they are connected and faithful to him, they flourish. But what's happened is that their unfaithfulness has led to their destruction. Now, Jesus is stepping in and saying that I am the true vine, that Jesus does what God's people are incapable of doing, and that is remaining perfectly obedient to God the Father. And so that's a little jab, right? But it's a sweet jab, as we'll see as this progresses. But not only does this passage reveal Jesus' identity as the true vine, it shows us the Father's identity as the vine dresser. 
Now, I think this is a really helpful illustration that Jesus gives us because it shows us that God is not just a planter who drops the seed in the soil and walks away and maybe someday something will sprout up. No, a vine dresser is intimately involved in curating the vine so that it produces fruit. Now, that's the, that's the objective of the vine dresser, not just to see that the vine grows, but that the vine produces fruit. See, it's possible for a vine to grow and be barren. I think the same can be said of a church. A church can grow. People can fill up a room every Sunday morning, yet it be fruitless. Now listen, just think of this. What good is a fruitless vine to a winery? Right? Nobody wants a tree sap wine. Bitter, ugh, dirt taste, nobody wants that. The winery wants to produce this, this sweet, aromatic sense of just an experience of wine, okay? So we see that the main goal of the vine dresser is fruitfulness, that God wants a fruitful church, which means he wants fruitful Christians. Now we can see this in verse two. And I'm gonna tell you, we're kind of jumping around through this passage a little bit and we're going to try to hit everything in between these next two weeks but if something slides through the cracks I'm probably going to come back to it next week but here we see in in verse two he says every branch in me that does not bear fruit again identifying fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit here we see God is focused on the flourishing of the vine so it produces fruit. And he classifies two different types of branches. And Jesus fills us in on this illustration in verse five when he says that he is the vine and we are the branch. And what he's saying here is that there are two kinds of people. And each branch, depending on what kind of branch it is, receives a unique treatment. And so with the branch without fruit, he tells us it gets removed. And in verse six, he goes on that if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like the branch and withers. And the branch is gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Right, that's where he expands on that. Now this is not, it's easy to read this passage and be intimidated or scared by this. All right, this is not a passage that is meant to scare you into fruitfulness. In fact, Jesus is going to tell us in a minute why that won't work. You cannot be scared into fruitfulness. I think the intention, for, as Jesus is saying this, his intention is to show us that the vine dresser's mission is fruitfulness. And that mission will not be compromised, nor will it be diluted. See, in fact, the vine dresser is so committed to this mission of, of seeing that fruit would be produced is that he's willing to take his pruning shears to the branches that are actually bearing fruit. And he does this so that they would bear fruit more abundantly. Now this is both good to hear and it's also a little scary to hear, okay? Because what this means is that if you are abiding in Christ, God is going to prune you so your life becomes more fruitful. No one is exempt from this. And let me tell you, 
This pruning, what, what God's doing here in pruning us doesn't happen in some sort of spiritual vacuum, like where we can go to our prayer closet and be like, oh, okay, oh, God, you're trying to do this in me. I can sense that. No, God uses the normal everyday relationships, routines, circumstances to do this work of pruning in our life. Now, some of us in this room have, have really experienced this. We've been aware of this experience. A time in your life where you've sensed God going to work as the vine dresser, trimming pieces away from you. Maybe you lost a relationship. There's a conflict at work. Someone is questioning your character or you're having this false identity exposed. Now, in the moment when this is happening, very rarely is this actually like a really pleasant experience. It takes spiritual forethought to see what's going on here and actually enjoy it. And a lot of times, it can feel as if something important is being taken from you. And in the middle of it, we're, we're shaking our fists at God. What are you doing? Why would you do this to me? But as weeks and months and years pass and we finally have some sort of perspective on what God was doing, you can actually see how God was making room for gospel fruit in your life. Now let me just sit here for a moment because I think it's really important to grapple with. I think that there are some people here in this room who are either in the process of being pruned or about to be pruned and face the shears of the vine dresser. And there are people like me included who want to push back on this because we're okay with the mediocre, semi-bitter fruit that we're producing in our life. See, we can kind of point out the, the places where God's maybe already done some work and, and it appears as if there's some good fruit coming to fruition. And so we say, you know what, God, let's just, let's just bypass this. Let's be okay with how it is. We can sense the shears moving in and instead of trusting the process, we want to fight against it. We justify and identify some of the good stuff that we think is actually good enough because we can't envision producing a sweeter fruit. Just think of that. I eat. God's desire for you is to produce a fruit in you that is so sweet that you just... You just salivate. That the people who know you in your life, that they enjoy it when you walk into the room because there's something that God has done in you that is so sweet. Now this idea reminds me of an excerpt that C.S. Lewis penned in the book Mere Christianity. It's kind of a long quote, so bear, bear with me. He switches metaphors uh, to a house. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. 
you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and to live in it himself. But I also feel like there are people when the shears approach, it's not just that we can't envision what we'd be like someday. Maybe we have that vision, like maybe I'd be like this. But what we sense is, is the snippers of a frustrated, upset, irritated God coming in on us. And you might perceive every snip as some sort of punishment or payback. Like the snips are meant to harm you. Right? Maybe you lost your job. You received an undesired diagnosis. You've had fertility issues. You've found yourself in financial troubles. All of these things could be means in which God is pruning you, but you look at that and you see that that is God in trying to hurt you rather than to heal you. Now, let me just tell you this. The father that I know who's concerned about producing fruit, he moves in with a loving and gracious hand. He's not trying to punish you. He's not trying to make you pay for something. He's doing it out of love. And let me tell you, the precision that he has is far greater than the precision of a skilled surgeon. He only cuts to heal and to restore health. So we can know, when we get a perspective of who it is behind the shears, a loving, caring, compassionate father, we can trust that every snip is motivated by kindness and is in pursuit of our ultimate joy, which allows us to trust God, trust the process. Now, we've been talking a lot about fruitfulness, and we've yet to really define what fruitfulness is. What is it that God is after now, in the New Testament, there are a lot of agricultural themes that revolve around harvest and bearing fruit. And, and it seems like these things can sort of blur together. Uh, but it's really helpful to, to isolate each one because each passage has its own little nuance. Now, a lot of people might look at this and say, you know, uh, we're talking about fruit. We're talking about multiplying disciples, seeing converts come to know Jesus. But, but this particular passage isn't about that. This, this passage is about cultivating a right heart. In fact, verse eight says that yielding to the shears of the vine dresser and bearing fruit is proof that we are his disciples. And he goes on to, to explain that this fruitfulness is not a, a vague concept to Jesus. If you skim over verses nine and 10, you'll see the word love appears five times within those two verses. Whenever there's a word that's repeated like that, that should be like a flashing light. Something's going on here. See, the fruit that God is wanting to produce in his people is love. And it just so happens when you go to Galatians 5 and you look at the fruit of the Spirit, the first one that's listed off is love. Love, love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But love, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if we don't have love, we have nothing. And as he goes on in verses 9, 10, and 11, what he shows us is the, the type of love that God is wanting to produce in your heart is not just this dutiful, 
stale sort of love. This is a dynamic, robust, joy-producing love. In fact, look at verse 11 when he says, these things I have spoken to you. He's been talking about love. This, this word about the Father's love that has been poured into Jesus, which Jesus pours into us, this word I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Christians who just dabble in joy aren't doing it right. Christian life should be marked by a fullness, not just a fullness, but an increasingly fullness of joy. And we're gonna dig into the implications of what happens when we have this sort of a heart and the fruit, the visible fruit that's produced out of that heart. We're gonna do that next week, but first we need to see the nature of the fruit before we get to the shape of the fruit. And here's why. Because it's possible to tell you this is the character, these are the characteristics of love, to go and then do this, right? It's, it's possible to short circuit really experiencing and being seeped in the Father's love and just going and doing stuff and having a, vis a visual appearance of good fruit. I experienced this. So I love peaches. I think peaches are God's, one of God's greatest, most natural gifts to mankind. There's something about a peach, and I can... I can I'm not a huge fan of the skin, but you get to the middle, the juicy, the texture, it's, it's pristine, okay? But the thing about peach is it's really, really hard to identify a really good peach. And there's, there's some visual things that you can take into consideration, right? You want to make sure that it's not too firm and not too mushy, right? You want it to be kind of dense, right? Hopefully this means there's some juices in there. But listen, I've had my heart broken many times by peaches like this. It looks like it's good. You sink in your teeth into it, and it's like it's the, the fruit equivalent of eating styrofoam. There's no juice. It, it's bland. It's, it's just gross. Now, the thing is that we can actually produce fruit like this in our life if we short-circuit the experience and, and sitting in and abiding in God's love. This is why God gets to the heart of the matter rather than saying, this is what love does. Because if a heart is in a love-giving, joy-producing state, all the actions that we're after will naturally flow from it. We're told the actions are the overflow of the heart. The words are the overflow of the heart. The heart is the epicenter of the human. So if we can, if we can experience something in our heart, then we see the effects of it coming out later on. Now, I think it's possible for us to have this general, to think that we have a general disposition of love, okay? To think, you know, I, we always think, we equate the opposite of love with hate, uh, which isn't necessarily the case. The opposite of love is indifference. We can generally think of ourselves as loving people, but when we get to the heart of it, there's a lot of us that is just indifferent with God, with people in our lives, not to say that it's a, a general blanket, but, but if we really dig in, we can see how that's true. 
And at the core of this is a twisted propensity towards self-love. Now, self-love is the most volatile type of love. It's, it's like bitter fruit. And the fruit that God is cultivating in us is a love that is first and foremost for God and then for others. Now, when we can identify it, like I could say, like, I see how this love is at work in my life. I feel this self-love. If you have some self-awareness, you can see how that selfishness is a driving factor in your life. Maybe God's opened your eyes to see that. Now, to, to say, this is how I am and this is what I want to be. Okay. How do you get from how you are to how you want to be? Here lies the problem that we are incapable of transforming our own heart and, and even without help, we can't even see the condition of our own heart. Have you ever seen a garden tend to itself? No. Uh, somebody has to step into that garden, has to, has to water, has to give food for the plants, has to weed out the weeds, put, make sure things are getting adequate sunlight. There's work that goes into this. And in such way, we need help. In fact, Jesus says so in verses four and five. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And this can be a hard pill for us to swallow. Because if you, if you go to a bookstore, there's a section that tells you that this is wrong. It says, you know what? You can modify yourself. You can pursue some self-help and, and change your behavior and modify things in that way. And I'm not saying you can't make behavior changes. You totally can but without a heart change underneath of it, your behavior will revert back to the way it was before. Now this is honestly, this is at the core of why I think discipleship is both intimidating and exhausting. Because if you're going at it by yourself, this is an overwhelming project. And if you're actually giving yourself to the project, then you're gonna be exhausted. We either look at our heart and say, this is too much work, I'm just going to accept, love. this is the way that I am. This is me, right? There's no way I'm going to change. Or if we look at it as a challenge, we bear down on this challenge. We think that we can muscle our hearts into conforming to what God has in mind for this fruit. Now listen to me. I think it is God's grace to us to reveal how intimidating and exhausting this project is. I think it's only when we see how big this issue is is when we turn for help. And when we turn for help, when we turn to Jesus for help, we tap into a source that is outside of ourselves and allows for real, 
gospel change, right? A, a chance for us to really bear fruit in our life. Now, Jesus says in this passage, the key to bearing fruit is to abide. At the beginning of verse four, he says, abide in me and I in you. Now, what he's saying here, he's not saying, when we think of the word abide, this is where mine goes, abide by these rules. Right? Follow these rules and then something, that's not what Jesus is saying. Although, what we're gonna see next week is how obedience flows out of a heart that's abiding. When Jesus talks about abiding, he's talking about being connected and dependent upon Jesus. There's a sense of staying put, being near to him, but there's also an action that is implied, right? This is part of a command to abide. Now listen, the way, if you're in a boat, the way you drift away is by doing nothing. Do nothing and you drift away. The same is true of where our heart is with Jesus. Do nothing to, to curate and to cultivate a relationship there and you'll drift away. That's why Jesus says, abide. This is an action of, of drawing sustenance, of being intentional with drawing sustenance from Jesus. Just like a branch is connected to the vine in order to pull its nutrients out and produce fruit, abiding is the key. Now, to get theological here, what this is pointing to is our union with Christ. That he is in us and we are in him. This is, this is union with Christ is the central doctrine of the Christian life. And, and it's a lot of times we don't talk about it. I've been guilty of this. We, we kind of overstep that. But here it is. Here's the meat and potatoes of the Christian life. In fact, Thomas Goodwin, an old Puritan, says, being in Christ and united to him is the fundamental constitution of being a Christian. Now, I realize I say that for those of you who love theology, you probably push back a little bit here. You want to say, you know, the central doctrine of the, the Christian faith is the cross. It's the cross, right? Jesus died for our sins and made us new, forgave us, all of this stuff. And I, I don't dispute the importance of the cross. But listen, the cross is the means to get to the end-all, be-all, which is for God to be with his people. Think of this in terms of the narrative of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve with God in the garden. They're enjoying, they're communing with God. There's relationship there. They're abiding with God. Now, the fall happens. Things get kind of messy. They're separated. There's this brokenness. We get to the Exodus, the end of the Exodus story when God pulls his people out of slavery and sets them in the desert, what happens is God gives them the ability to create a tabernacle or which will one day turn into the temple when they're in Jerusalem, that God himself will move in and be their neighbor, that God will be near to them. And then Jesus comes along and says, you know what, I'm the new temple. Right? I'm the new dwelling place of God where you can be with God. And then even when we look forward to Revelation, we see that what God is working to in all things is to bring his people near to him to be united and communing with God. See, the cross is the means to that end, which is why the cross is important. But what God is really after is for us to abide and to commune with him. Now, I'm not gonna pretend that I know all the ins and outs of this 
mystery. Scripture calls union with Christ a mystery between he and the church. Yet there is a profound reality here. Now here's what it means for you to be in Christ. I'm gonna go to to Rankin-Wilborn for this here just to, to make it nice and concise. He says, this is what it means to be in Christ. Christ represents those who place their faith in him. If we are united to Christ, then we are united to him in all that he has done for us. Christ represents those who come to be his so thoroughly that we are said to have been crucified with Christ, buried with him, and raised with him. We are even seated with him in heavenly places now as we walk about with both feet on the ground. When we are in Christ, every part of Christ's life, not only his death, has significance for us. We share in his life of obedience, his death, his resurrection, even his ascension. We participate in another's victory. All that is his becomes ours. Colossians 3.3 gives us perfect snapshot of this. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That we are in Christ. Now there's other side of this, that not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you. Not only is it Jesus before you and beside you and behind you, Christ is in you. Again, this quote from Rankin Wilborn, he says, to be, united into, to be united to Christ is to have the spirit of Christ within you. The spirit is the real living bond between Jesus and us. If you do not have the spirit, then you do not have Christ. But if the spirit dwells within you, consider what you have. Having the spirit is the equivalent, indeed, the very mode of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ indwelling with us so that we are united to him and he is united to the Father. See, to be, for Christ to be in us is Christ's power and life to enter into our lives and to transform us not only to deal with and atone for our past, but also to now liberate, with, to liberate us with a strength and power and dignity unlike any other. Union with Christ means that from the inside out, Jesus is remaking you. He's making you more you that you have been grafted into Christ and that the spirit of Christ has been implanted in you so that we can, we can confess, like we sang this morning, that, that he is, that we are his and he is mine. Now for Christians, this is our spiritual reality. You are united with Christ. There's no changing that. Christ's work on the cross has made that certain. But the act of abiding is leaning into that union to commune with Jesus, to have relationship, to gain. You know, it's like a good friendship. Right? Good friendships aren't, aren't static. It's not dull. It's not dutiful. It's, it's about enjoying, about celebrating, about gleaning from one another. 
So your union with Christ doesn't waver. That is locked in. But your experience of that union requires intentionality. This is abiding. So, so in this sense, abiding isn't necessarily just static or passive and staying in the same place. It requires action in response to what's already been accomplished for you, that you have been united to Christ. Now let's live out of that. One old preacher called this a labor of being brought near. Now this is kind of like a, a double-sided saying here. So there's labor, there's, there's energy being exerted, but there's this sense where God is ultimately the one who's doing the, the communing, the bringing near. Think about it in terms of sailing. I don't know if anybody's a sailor, but I have friends that, uh, that they just purchased a boat in France and they're going to sail up along the coast and they're going to do crazy stuff that I never do. But, but I got to sit down and talk with a little bit about sailing and how that works. Otherwise, I wouldn't know anything. But, but sailing is this, shares a similar dynamic. Right? There, there's a sense of where you have to use your skill and energy to set the sails in the right, in the right way. But you're reliant on the wind to carry you. Union with Christ is a lot like that. It's learning how to catch the wind. It's a matter of harnessing the love that God is pouring out in a way that transforms you. Now, if we don't dig into the practicalities here, and I'm coming to a close. I know I've been out of the pulpit for a few weeks, so long-winded today. But one of the greatest gifts that we receive in being united to Christ is that we now have access to the Father just as Jesus does. And the way that is expressed is through prayer. Now Jesus makes mention of prayer here in chapter 15. He says, if you abide in me uh, and, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Like, that's prayer language. Prayer is the means in which we experience communion with Jesus in greater and greater ways. And I'm not just talking about quick prayers before meals and stuff, though, though God listens to those. Quick prayers in your car, God's listening to those. But the prayers that really change us are, are thoughtful, meditative, and soul-emptying. In fact, Jesus taught us how to pray. And the Lord's Prayer isn't just a, a prayer that we just breeze our way through. It's a template for prayer. We're going to spend a few weeks after this digging in the Lord's Prayer and all of that so, so we can learn how to pray better and tap into this union with Christ. But the way that we learn to abide is through prayer and meditating on Scripture. There's no way, there's no way to, to, to find a shortcut. And for a lot of people, it's really hard. Being quiet is hard. I get it. I know. It's hard for me. I'm always picking up my phone or doing something stupid, you know. I'm trying to sit here and, and spend time with God, and I've got all these distractions. It's tough. But this is the means in which God takes us and produces good fruit in us. And the good news is that union with Christ, because of our union with Christ, the prayer that we have, the, the words that we read in scripture aren't just lifeless. The, the spirit that spoke those things is the same spirit that is in us making these things become more real. Now, if we as a church, let me tie this up here, almost done. If we as a church want to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city for generation after generation, which I want to see that happen, 
It begins with learning how to abide. That's it. By learning how to, learning how to pull from a, a power source that isn't us. In learning to abide, we learn how to make disciples. You just teach other people what you're already doing. In learning to abide, we pull from a power source that actually sustains us on this huge mission. Theologian said that union with Christ is theological shorthand for the gospel, that we cannot grow in union with Christ unless we're constantly being reminded of the gospel. So let me just say this, that Christ drew near to you when you couldn't draw near to him that he made a way for you to be connected to the Father, to really tap into the love of the Father that is poured out to Christ and Christ pours out to us. God has made a way. Are you gonna take him up on that offer? Are you going to make a, a, a mental, a internal decision to daily abide? That's my question. I'll leave it there. Let me just say, we're, we're coming to the Lord's table this morning, and, and the Lord's table contains a profound um, reminder of our union with Christ. Not only is it a reminder, but it's an invita invitation into communion with God. Galatians 2.20 says that we were crucified with Christ, that we come up here and we look at the cross and we see that our sin was placed on him, that it was his body that was broken, not ours. It was his bloodshed, not ours. But in that sense, by faith, we were crucified with him. That's why we open our hands and receive broken body and, and spilled blood. But here, as we take this meal and eat it, we're reminded that Christ is inside of us. That it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. It is Christ who guides, who strengthens who is near to us. So as we take this meal, we need to consider how are we communing with the one who lives inside of us? Are we going to nourish our union with Christ or are we gonna be like spouses who share the same house and the same bed and just don't really talk to each other? God is offering us something sweet. Let's take him up on it. Father, we, we thank you for these words of Jesus. We, we are grateful to know that you are such a kind and compassionate vine dresser. Father, I pray that if, if we are in a season where you are um, at work pruning, that we would yield to the gracious hand of the vine dresser, that you would help us to trust you. And in doing so, would you produce fruit in us. Father God, help us to to see and not just see and know, but to really experience your love, that you would give your only son for us, that we'd be like him. We thank you in Christ's name, amen.